This is My Black Counts, a podcast series sponsored by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health at the University of Maryland, with production assistance from WYPR. Hello, everyone. Welcome to My Block Counts, an environmental justice podcast dedicated to helping people know so they can grow and help things flow within their communities. My name is Dr. Shakobi Wilson, and today we're going to dive into what is environmental justice? So what is environmental justice? The U.S. EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, defines environmental justice as the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. The goal is to make sure everybody has access to clean air, clean water, and a clean environment. Now, I like Dr. Bunyan Bryant's definition a little bit better. Environmental justice refers to those cultural norms and values, rules, regulations, behaviors, uh, policies, and decisions to support sustainable communities where people can interact with confidence that their environment is safe, nurturing, and productive. Environmental justice is served when people realize their highest potential without experiencing the isms. It's supported by decent paying and safe jobs. So quality schools and recreation, affordable housing, adequate healthcare, personal empowerment, and communities free of violence, drugs, and poverty. So we're talking about going from unjust housing to just housing, unjust healthcare to just healthcare, unjust food infrastructure to just food infrastructure unjust transportation to just transportation. Environmental justice is a social movement. It's the child of the civil rights movement. It's a movement that's about fighting against the differential burden of environmental hazards and what we call locally wanted land uses in communities of color and low wealth communities. What do we mean? You tend to see incinerators put in black communities. We tend to see more power plants put in black communities more landfills put in communities of color. We tend to see more highways and byways put in communities of color. So whenever there's a hazard where there's pollution being emitted, a petrochemical operation, a factory spewing out contaminants, for some reason, those facilities tend to be more in areas where you have more people of color and where you have more low-wealth populations. So this movement is about where you live, where you work, where you play, where you pray, and where you learn. It's about your neighborhood and making sure that your neighborhood counts. My name is Dr. Jacoby Wilson. I'm an environmental health scientist. I do environmental justice work. You know, it's really about working with communities that are dealing with being overburdened by incinerators and power plants. You know, why do we have so many of these industrial animal operations like chicken farms in our communities or hog farms in our communities? And I got started doing this work as a young boy. I grew up in Vicksburg, Mississippi, near a concrete uh, crushing facility. I grew up near a major highway, near a sewage treatment plant. And my mom always reminds me, like, son, don't forget, you also grew up near a landfill. So we had a landfill near our neighborhood. And my father was a pipe fitter. So he worked in construction, building actually some of these facilities that, that I work on. Power plants. He worked at the Grand Gulf Nuclear Power Plant. Growing up in Mississippi, near the river, was part of my connection to love to the environment. You know, growing up, 
under these hazards made me aware of something is wrong with having all these facilities near my neighborhood. And I also was diagnosed with alopecia, Arietta, age seven. So before all this uproar about alopecia, I've been bald since 1982. And part of that experience with alopecia drove me to want to understand what stressors in the environment, what happened in my environment, what was exposed to my environment that made me lose my hair because it's an autoimmune condition, just in the same way that you have other autoimmune conditions that disproportionately impact folks of color, like lupus is a big issue that impacts Black women. And I was able to go to a historically Black college and get training in environmental uh, science and biology. Uh, some of my best mentors really helped me in the pathway to where I am today at Alabama uh, Agricultural Mechanical University in Huntsville, Alabama. So shout out to HBCUs out there. And so that training gave me the foundation to be an environmental health scientist. And I met Dr. Robert Bullard and Reverend Dr. Benjamin Chavis at a conference in 1995. And they are both icons in the environmental justice movement. And I knew from that point forward that I was going to do environmental justice work. So now I'm at the University of Maryland College Park. I've been at the University of Maryland College Park since 2011. I direct SIEGE, the Center for Community Engagement and Environmental Justice and Health. And what we do is focus on helping communities do their own science and translate their science to action. We train community members to be community scientists. Anybody can be a scientist. You don't have to have a PhD to be a scientist. And the best people to come up with solutions to environmental justice problems are the folks that live in the community. So what we try to do is uplift communities through science. We do an empowerment science. We want to empower community members through science. We also do liberation science. We want to make sure we are liberating communities who are living in sacrifice zones. We want to help use science to liberate folks from being poisoned every day. We want to use science to help folks combat the climate injustices they may be experiencing, right? You may not believe in climate change, but climate change believes in you. It definitely believes in low wealth folks. It definitely believes in people of color because we are the ones that differentially impacted by climate change. Whether it be heat waves, which are hell for the poor and the elderly, whether it be sea level rise, whether it be flooding, hurricanes, forest fires, low wealth folks are always impacted the worst. Folks of color are always impacted the worst. So we try to, again, help people get science, use scientific tools, collect their own data so they can tell their own stories and they can seek action, seek social change. And that's what we do at my center. And this podcast is important because your block counts, your neighborhood counts, what you're experiencing counts. We want to talk about what you're experiencing every day. Environmental justice is about where we live, where we work, where we play, where we pray, what we learn, and we're going to talk about those issues in this podcast and talk about what the problems are, but also talk about solutions. In the words of the great Jesse Jackson, this podcast is not just about problematizing, it's also about solutionizing. Of course, Jesse never said that, but y'all get my point. We want to make sure that we give you tips and the tools so you can address the issues in your neighborhood when it comes to environmental injustice, climate injustice, energy injustice. Let me give a quick history lesson and some fun facts, or maybe not so fun facts. So did you know that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is considered the grandfather of the environmental justice movement? 
we wouldn't have civil rights and the Voting Rights Act and the parks in this country. We wouldn't have made the parks we made in this in environmental justice law, Dr. King. His actions not only led to the Civil Rights Act, as I said, but it also came around the same time you had the Clean Air Act in 1963, the Clean Water Act in 1972, and the Endangered Species Act in 1973. But what's important from an environmental perspective, you know, when Dr. King was in Memphis and he was assassinated almost 55 years ago now, he was in Memphis working with the sanitation worker strike in 1968. And the reason why it's important, that strike was really, in many ways, part of the foundation of the environmental justice movement. You saw Black men being mistreated on the job. They were covered in waste all the time. And if you remember from your history books, Black men were carrying around signs that said, I am a man. And why is that important? They were saying, recognize my humanity. So you think about the environmental justice movement, communities that are impacted by these hazards, again, overburden the power plants, incinerators, landfills, not having access to food infrastructure, right? Being over burdened by fast food restaurants instead of having grocery stores, not having parks, green space, and, you know, tree canopy, right? They're saying recognize our humanity. Treat us with humanity. Don't dump on us. And that's a central part of the environmental movement. So we wouldn't have an EJ movement without the civil rights movement, and we wouldn't have an environmental movement without the work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Now, we have Dr. King as the grandfather of the environmental justice movement. Dr. Robert Bullard is known as the father of the environmental justice movement, referred to by many because of his work in Houston, Texas in the 1970s, where they found that most of the landfills were built in Houston were built in primarily Black communities. But probably the event that really brought environmental justice to national attention really is the spark for the environmental justice movement was the Warren County PCB landfill fight in 1982. So basically, PCBs are polychlorinated biphenyls. There was a landfill that was built to store these PCB-contaminated soil, dirt in North Carolina. And unfortunately, in the process of siting this landfill, they ended up siting the landfill in a primarily Black rural low wealth community in after North Carolina, which is found in Warren County. And so you had people who were protesting against 60,000 tons of, of contaminated dirt coming into this county. You heard me right, 60,000 tons of contaminated dirt were going to be brought into this landfill. Folks laid across the ground to stop these trucks from coming into this county. And then you had a lot of civil rights leaders who were present, who protested, who fought against this landfill, like Reverend Dr. Benjamin Chavis, uh, who was then director of the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice. He called this landfill siting environmental racism. He was the first to coin that term, environmental racism. And think about all those PCBs being brought into this Black community. I mean, these chemicals can impact reproduction, suppress your immune system, mess with your brain development, how you think, right? It can impair the development of children. It can cause cancer. So this is one of the first examples of environmental racism. And we see it time and time again across the country where for some reason, more of those tend to be put in black communities or Hispanic communities. Or look at the mining operations that you see 
or in primarily indigenous communities. For some reason, people of color neighborhoods, remember your neighborhood counts, get targeted for these hazards. So this movement for environmental justice is really at its core, a movement against environmental racism. And this Warren County PCB landfill fight was really the beginning of the environmental justice movement in this country. Now, one of the most important events in the history of the environmental justice movement was the first People of Color Summit. The first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit was held in 1991. There were over 1,100 people who attended from all 50 states, as well as Puerto Rico, Chile, Mexico, and the Marshall Islands. The event was a crucible of solidarity and creativity that changed the trajectory of the environmental justice movement, but also the U.S. environmental movement. At this first People of Color Summit, the 17 principles of environmental justice were developed and codified. In my opinion, you cannot say you're doing environmental justice work if you don't know about the principles, right? So if you're doing environmental justice work, you have to be grounded in the 17 principles of environmental justice. These principles talk about sustainability, Mother Earth. They talk about protecting resources for future generations. Principles five and seven are really about the community speaking with their own voice and self-determination. One element of environmental justice is recognitional justice. Was that? Making sure that those that are most impacted, right, are at the table telling their stories. They're the ones that are making decisions. The people who are the contextual experts, the folks that are in the communities, they're the ones that know the problems, but they also know the solutions. They have to be at the table. Those are very important elements of the 17th principle of environmental justice. The principles also talk about nuclear war, talk about mining, talk about human rights. You have a human right to clean air. You have a human right to clean water, to save food and safe housing. So that's a big part of the 17 principles. They also talk about environmental genocide and that we have to protect people from genocide. They talk about climate change and displacement. The principles are again, like the Magna Carta for environmental justice. They're the framework for doing deep EJ work. And this summit, again, was the foundation for our movement and how we can really make sure we engage with communities on the front line and on the fence line, those folks who live in these factories, who live in these hazards, and make sure their voices are heard. So again, in my opinion, if you don't know the 17 principles, then you're not doing environmental justice work. If you're not using 17 principles, you're not doing environmental justice work. And for me, every environmental justice activist is an environmentalist, but not every environmentalist is an environmentalist activist. And that's because you're not grounded in the 17 principles of environmental justice. Those principles are holistic. They cover conservation. They cover air quality, water quality, occupational safety. They cover indigenous rights, human rights, sustainability. They cover economic justice. They talk about consumer behavior. You got to look up and review the 17 principles. If you get to know those principles, then you can also be an effective environmental justice advocate and an effective environmental justice activist. And to make sure your neighborhood counts, you got to know those principles and make them work for you. And if you want to learn more about these principles, this podcast, My Block Counts, you know, making sure that every neighborhood counts, we're going to cover 
each principle over the next year and a half. So we'll talk about principles of related conservation. We'll talk about the principle related to human rights. We'll talk about the principle related to indigenous knowledge and indigenous rights. The principle as relates to displacement. Principle as relates to communities' voice being integrated into decision making. This podcast is really about pushing out the 17 principles and making sure you understand what the principles are and you can integrate those principles into your everyday life, into your work to advance environmental justice and climate justice. So now that we got a history lesson down about environmental justice, let's shift our focus to an example of where we see environmental injustice. Let's go to Baltimore, home of the Ravens, crab cakes, and of course the TV show The Wire. The communities that are most impacted by racial injustice in the city are the same communities that are most impacted by climate injustice and environmental injustice. Think about Baltimore and its history. Now, we have this book by Dr. Lawrence Brown on Baltimore called The Black Butterfly. And what he's talking about is where you have segregation in Baltimore, where you have a lot of black folk who live in the east and west parts of Baltimore and the wings of the butterfly. And you see lots of poverty. You see poor housing quality, homes with lead paint. You see a lot of discrimination, social inequality. And why do we have this level of segregation in the black butterfly? It's the legacy of racist zoning and landing in Baltimore. Baltimore was the first city in the country that had racism-based zoning, right? Because of your skin color, we're going to zone the area in a certain way. We're going to put the industry where all the black folks are, but put all the trees and commercial resources and infrastructure where the white residents are. And so this type of racist zoning, what happened in the past, impacts the patterning of social infrastructure, you know, housing infrastructure, food infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, and where pollution sources go in Baltimore to this day. You also have the fact that of the point of redlining. Redlining was one of those discriminatory practices that put some types of services and resources out of reach of certain residents. So if you were in a neighborhood that had more people of color, more black folk, and you were trying to get loans for housing, oh, your neighborhood would get color red, right? Because you got people of color there. We don't want them getting loans. And so for those neighborhoods, there was disinvestment and divestment. All the grocery stores left. All the investment dollars left. And so you had an erosion of the infrastructure. Instead of having just food infrastructure, you had unjust. Instead of having just housing infrastructure, you had unjust, right? Instead of having just transportation infrastructure, you got unjust uh, transportation infrastructure. So redlining is a major driver of why you have this black butterfly in Baltimore and why you see major differences in the quality of infrastructure and the quality of the environment where you have areas where more black people live in Baltimore compared to areas where you have more white people who live in Baltimore. And studies have shown that areas that are redlined, cities that are redlined, like Atlanta, like Cleveland, like Miami, and San Francisco, those areas that are historically redlined will have higher temperatures. You have more urban heat islands, right? Hotter in those areas. And those areas also tend to have more health disparities compared to areas that are not redlined. That's a major driver of environmental injustice in Baltimore. 
redlining and the legacy of racist zoning in Baltimore. There are other issues in Baltimore, too, I want to highlight for y'all. When you think about environmental injustice, you got air quality problems in Baltimore. You got the Willabrator incinerator. We like to call it a wasted energy incinerator, which makes it sound nice. But basically, they're burning trash for power, right? But it's the largest source of air pollution in Baltimore. It emits gases like nitrogen oxide and sulfur oxide. It produces smog. And whose neighborhood hosts it? Can y'all guess? A primarily black neighborhood, West Point. So think about the health impacts of living near incinerator. Think about the health impacts. If you've been exposed to those pollutants, it can cause asthma attacks, heart disease, stroke. When you're exposed to air pollution, it can increase infant mortality rates. It can lead to birth defects. It can lead to low birth weight babies. It can cause cancer. It can lead to premature mortality and impact life expectancy. I'm going to tell y'all something. Your zip code is more important than genetic code. So what you've been exposed to impacts your health. And the Willowbird incinerator is an example of that. It's also an example of environmental racism. Not just air quality issues, Baltimore has been feeling the heat. Let's talk about heat waves or a hill for the poor and the elderly. Did you know that extreme heat is the nation's deadliest weather disaster? killing as many as 1,200 people per year in the U.S. Baltimore is a city predicted to be one of the top 10 cities in the country with excess heat by 2050. Between 2012 and 2018, 28% of Maryland's heat-related deaths occurred in Baltimore. Why is that? Well, remember I talked about racist zoning and redlining? Because the redlining, neighborhoods didn't have trees. So trees are good for shading and cooling. Also, because of racist zoning and redlining, you have a lot of asphalt and concrete in the wings of that black butterfly. So what does asphalt and concrete do? They absorb heat. So it's already hot. But when you're near asphalt and concrete, it's hotter, okay? So you don't have trees. You got heat from asphalt and concrete. And then a lot of folks, particularly in the older neighborhoods, don't have air conditioning. That is a dangerous mix for folks that have heat strokes, get hospitalized, and die from heat. So folks of color are really at risk from weather events like heat waves and also have higher risk of going to the hospital and dying young because of outdoor air pollution. In fact, Baltimore has some of the most vulnerable populations to these issues who, again, are what color? primarily. Black folks, 62% being African American. When you think about Baltimore, you got physical stressors like heat, chemical stressors like air pollution. You have a lack of infrastructure like good housing, transportation, food infrastructure, which means folks are going to be at high risk from climate change and it may lead to poor health outcomes, health disparities. And also, it impacts you economically, too. So we're going to learn about these issues in all our podcasts about how environmental justice impacts your neighborhood and how what you can do to make sure that your neighborhood counts. So what can you do to make sure your block counts? 
something we can do ourselves. You can practice self-education. Learn more about what's happening in your neighborhood. Do you have hazards? Do you have a lot of highways or, or roadways in your neighborhood? Do you live near small polluters like auto body shops or laundromats? Learn about the type of chemicals that impact your health and the health of your children. So practice this self-education. I mean, that's the first part of empowerment is empowering yourself. Learn about what's happening around in your community and other communities. Elevate the voices of impacted communities. One of the principles of environmental justice is communities speak with their own voice. But I think if we're going to bridge uh, and advance environmental justice, we have to bridge across difference. We have to work together. We have to build collaborations. We have to build relationships. We have to build partnerships. So find out who are the communities that are impacted by environmental justice near you. I've worked with communities in Charleston, South Carolina, like the Low Country Alliance for Model Communities in North Charleston. You got folks in Newark, New Jersey. Kim Gaddy is somebody you can work with in Newark. You got folks in Baltimore, South Baltimore Land Trust. You got folks in the Baltimore Transit Equity Coalition. Find these community-based organizations that you can work with. Empower DC is working with communities in, in DC. You got California Environmental Justice Alliance in California. You got the Michigan Environmental Justice Coalition in Michigan. The North Carolina Environmental Justice Network. The South Carolina Environmental Justice Network. And you got coalitions, networks, groups like We Act for Environmental Justice that are working with impacted communities. You should do the same. Find those communities and partner with them. Hold your representatives accountable. Your vote counts. I'm a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. We have a, a program called A Voteless People. It's a hopeless people. You got to vote. To make a democracy work, it takes work. And voting is part of that work. So we're in voting season now. Make sure that your elected officials have an environmental justice agenda. Have an agenda to address climate injustice, energy injustice. And use the power of boycott. Use the power of protest. One of the best ways that you can tell companies to stop polluting is stop buying their products. Don't buy a particular consumer product. It could be a personal care product. Stop buying that product. Don't buy some type of food product where maybe they're shipping it from long distances and it's creating greenhouse gas emissions and impacting public health. Learn about where your money is going and who you're giving your money to. If they're doing things that impact the environment, they're doing things that impact your neighborhood, to make your neighborhood not count, boycott them. And also protest. Many of us, we protest today by using social media and we may sign up for a campaign. We have to be more actively engaged in protesting. You got to make Mike and Ike, your two feet work. Be present. Be actively engaged. Go to the town council meeting. Go to City Hall. Be active protester, not just a social media protester. And we have to change our consumer behavior. Just in general, we have to make sure that we are doing things that don't impact the environment. I think about our kids. How are we going to put America first? We don't put our kids first. So think about our children in relation to the decisions that we make as consumers. We want our children to have clean air, right? We want our children to have safe water, right? We want our children to have safe food. We want our children to go to safe schools. Where as consumers, you can make decisions to make that true and make sure protecting our children and future generations. And another thing that you can do is attend our 8th University of Maryland Environmental Justice and Health Disparity Symposium. This is a primary example of what my center does to really build relationships and partnerships and bring different stakeholders together to address environmental justice issues and climate justice issues 
in the DMV region and beyond. The first symposium was held December 1st, 2012. It was the first of its kind in the Mid-Atlantic region. Yes, you heard right. First of its kind in the Mid-Atlantic region. What we bring together, academia, government, we bring together impact of residents, grassroots organizations, advocacy groups, health practitioners to a space to network and learn from each other, talk about the challenges, talk about solutions, and making sure, again, we're building a strong environmental justice movement in the Mid-Atlantic region. This year's symposium, the theme is energy versus power. I'm going to say it again. Energy versus power. Visions for the future. So we're going to be talking about energy justice issues. We're going to talk about climate change. We're going to talk about how communities can build their power to make sure they can get the racial justice, the social justice, the economic justice, the energy justice, the climate justice, the environmental justice that they deserve. We're going to talk about how we use technology in environmental justice work. We're going to have sessions on building community power, environmental justice policy, food sovereignty, right? I love talking about food. We got to grow our own food, folks, and how that's an important way to reduce the impacts of climate change, but also as a way to empower communities by growing your own food. That's something that we all need to do. We're going to talk about climate change and disasters, community science. Again, you don't have to have a PhD to be a scientist. We're all scientists. We use science every day. We got to have more folks on the front line, fence line, doing science that leads to action. We're going to talk about mapping tools. We're going to talk about law and policy issues, President Biden's Justice 40 initiative, as we move away from a dirty energy economy to a clean energy economy. 4% of those benefits should go to disadvantaged communities. 4% of those benefits should go to communities that impact environmental injustice. You should be at the front of the line when it comes to benefits and investments. And we're going to talk about that at the symposium. You'll hear from folks like uh, Dr. Robert Bullard, referred to by many as the father of the environmental justice movement. Dr. Beverly Wright with the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice. Mustafa Santiago Ali, who's the vice president at the National Wildlife Federation. Jalon White Newsom, who's the head of the Council of Environmental Qualities Environmental Justice Program. Dr. Sharonda Buchanan, who's a new head of the Office of Environmental Justice and Healthy Human Services. Reverend Lennox Yearwood with the Hip Hop Caucus. His work on climate change and climate justice, y'all need to get to know him in the Hip Hop Caucus. You're going to also hear from icons of the environmental movement who were at that fight against the PCB landfill in Warren County. It's going to be the 40th anniversary of that fight in September, and we're going to have a session with some of the folks who were there, like Dolly Burwell like Charles Lee, Reverend Leon White, and Reverend Dr. Benjamin Chavis. So please join us for the symposium. Registration closes around July 30th, but we may give you a little bit of wiggle room. You can go to www.ceejh.center to register for the symposium. And guess what, everybody? It's free. So come on, join us for day one, day two. That's going to be virtual. And day three is going to be in person. If you want to come out in person to the University of Maryland College Park, our student stamp union, it's also going to be hybrid. So if you're not able to join us in person on day three, all the sessions will be streamed live. But please join us, grow with us, build with us, and help us grow this environmental justice movement in the Mid-Atlantic region. So this is My Blog Counts, an environmental justice podcast dedicated to helping people know so they can grow and help things flow in their communities. Thank you for joining us. See you next time. Dr. Wilson. 
out. You've been listening to My Block Counts. My Block Counts is sponsored by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health at the University of Maryland. Executive producer and host, Dr. Sakobi Wilson, with production assistance from Aria Wharton. Technical producer, Kelly Avent. Additional information about My Black Counts can be found at CEEJH.Center or WYPR.org. New episodes of My Black Counts are released each month. Please share and subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review.